listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I got to tell you something, people. Christmas, Christmas is right around the corner. And we already have our Christmas tree. And I'm almost done shopping for Joanne, except for a pair of boots. And I can say what I'm getting her because she doesn't listen. But what stinks about being done shopping is I keep getting emails and I keep buying stuff. Like I got an email yesterday. It was from Old Navy for like dresses for $10. I'm like, they're perfect for her for work. So I bought three dresses because I had some other discount and I'm getting three dresses for 20 bucks. So it was like, I had to buy it. So by the time Christmas comes, I think she's going to have like 20 more presents. Anyway, we have a great show today. We have a uh, gentleman who's a very, very talented uh, director. It's funny, I have a lot of writers and actors on and I'm excited to have a director because he's involved in so many great TV shows. And I know I'm probably going to screw his name up, even though we went over it 20 times before. But I have Duran uh, Serafian. Yes, very good. Oh, all right. Excellent. <laughs> so, uh, so you're out there in LA, and uh, you've, you've been a director for a long time. Now, you come from a family. Uh, your father was an actor director, right? Yeah, a director. I'd say first actor. Later in his career, he uh, he was friends. He's you know he's, he's passed away, and uh, but he was very good friends with uh, Warren Beatty, and Warren Beatty put him in a few movies and. Um, no, they all came up together, and uh, and uh, and friends he is. My my father was was friends with a lot of Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando had put him in Don Juan DeMarco. Wanted him in Don Juan DeMarco was his partner, and in that movie, a cop partner. And so he decided, and actually put him in one of my films, Gunman, that I shot in Mexico. And uh, he decided he wanted to try some acting, and uh, did a good job really proud of him now did him being in the business make you gravitate toward business what were you like as a kid because you you know if your dad knew all these celebrities you, you probably knew celebrities as a kid and they're probably just normal people to you like you know mr and mrs wilson next door it's pretty pretty much um, i mean we had uh, like norman jewison lived across the street from us in brentwood and i hung out with his kids and i've also worked with them and my my mother's brother was Robert Altman, and uh, so my father and Robert Altman, they uh, met each other in Kansas City, and uh, and they were best friends, and actually my dad was an actor in a play for him, and then he got into making uh, commercials and industrial commercials and decided with my mother, let's go out to Hollywood and try to make it there, and so my mother was like the ghost writer for them, and the ghost writer for my uncle, Robert Altman, and ghost really wrote for my father and uh, and and was really the talent behind both of them, getting them and inspiring them. Inspiring them. And her name was Joan. Um, and, uh, and it's in Robert's book, Bob's book, about, you know, how they all started. And my father and my uncle ended up not being great friends in the end because my, my uncle said to my, to my dad when he thought he was dating his sister, he said, you better not date my sister, or I, I'm not going to talk to you again. And my dad was too late. She's pregnant. <laughs> she was pregnant with me. 
<laughs> so, so what was your childhood like, though? I mean, were you gravitated towards the industry, or were you gravitated towards sports? I mean, as I say, you know, you grow up, you know, I, I lived in L.A. for a long time, but I grew up in an area that there was a lot of lawyers and doctors in New Jersey. So a lot of the kids were gravitated towards going to law school or going to med school. What were you gravitated towards as a, as a younger kid and as you went into high school? Well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I went to boarding school in Kansas because that's where my mother was from. Um, I went to a prep school. I actually teach at my prep school now. Uh, every once in a while, I, I teach film and writing over at my, at my school as a, as a I sort of donate my time because it really made a big influence. But I definitely was influenced, to answer your question, Steve, I was definitely influenced by we was a very creative atmosphere. And I grew up in the 60s as a kid and 70s. You know, I was a teenager, and, and uh, my mother, you know, for back then, if you needed a babysitter, you dropped them off in a double, you dropped his kids off in a double feature. And so I, uh, it's funny because I was listening to Quentin Tarantino talk about how he grew up in that era, and, and I did too. I mean, that's all we did was see movies, and my, and there was no, um, there was no sort of back then. It was like my mother would say go and see whatever you want to see. And I go, well, we can sneak in R-rated movies. And we were like nine, I was like nine, 10, and my brothers, and we'd just go, we'd go to, we'd just go into the theater. I said, we had permission from our parents and they'd let us in. And we would see and watch the movies over and over and over again. I mean, we like a James Bond film or, you know, or a scary movie like Wait Until Dark with Alan Arkin. We would see these films, um, not just a double feature, but we'd wait and see them again. And it just whet my appetite. Then I'd come home and, like, I saw one movie that really impressed me. It was called Fantastic Voyage that really, really impressed me. And that was in the 60s. And I came home and would tell my mother the story. And I'd really get into the story. And then she would go see the movie. And she goes, you know, Darren, you, the way you told it was much more interesting than the movie. And she goes, maybe this is what you need to do in, in your life. And I thought, no, no, I don't know. I'm not sure if I want to do that. But as I got older and watched my father work, um, didn't really get to watch my uncle work that many times, although I did a few times. I, I did develop a style from them. I do, I do know that watching my father direct and watching his films and that sort of organic, uh, that organic vibe that he got from his films like Vanishing Point, really sort of, I absorbed that that sensibility in my my work and it and it reflects in even the TV shows I do on House and my C I did the you know first episode of CSI New York and I, I did it like I, I kept I keep seeing my dad the way he did it. So I can't deny that it had a huge influence. Now that I became a director because of him, you know, you can ask Sean Penn, is he a director or an actor because of Leo Penn, his father, who directed like, you know, great films, you know, Little Big Man and those type of films. And, and, um, and absolutely not. I mean, we really had to make our way. I, I went to Europe. I did, I worked for Roger Corman. Roger Corman, as you, I'm sure you know, is, is, you know, started out a lot of people. I worked for him for free until he started paying me gas money. And then, you know, James Cameron was there when I was there and, uh, amongst others. And I remember James Cameron, went to Italy to do Piranha 2. He got fired by this guy, this producer named Abidio Asimides. And I thought, you know, um, off that. Meanwhile, he had written Terminator, 
and um, and then he came back. And I was working with Linda Hamilton at the time. I was working with her on a movie called Tag, assassination game directed by Nick Castle. And uh, she got the camera, because we all kind of hung out. She got the camera and movie, Terminator, and the rest is history with her. And um, But it was a very tight community. And so I go, you know, I'm going to go to Italy. That's what I'm going to do. So I went to Italy. I got to meet Dario Gento and Miguel de Suave. And amongst others, I met uh, Federico Fellini there. I met Roman Polanski. Eventually, I hired as an actor in one of my early films. And uh, I, I, I wrote and I, you know, I, I worked my way up. And, you know, and my father wasn't around then. I give him a ton of credit because I did grow up in the business. So that's a huge help. But I was obsessed. I felt like if I wasn't going to be a director, um, I don't know what I would have done. I was obsessed. It was like something was controlling me from the outside. Really, really. It still does. It still does. Now, what what attracted um, you? What attracted you to Italy so much, though? I mean, you know, you knew people, but what was it? Something that's that just that the, as you said earlier, you 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 know, you direct very organic. Was it something because Italy was a different stylization? What direct? What pulled you over there? Because you know, for a lot of kids, not kids, but you know, for people early in the business, it's scary to go somewhere else. It, it was, I had, you know, my father's pretty tough on us. I mean, I painted the dress numbers on curves to support myself, you know, and I found out that if I could, I could go to, I could go to Beverly Hills with a, with stencils and I could, I could make, you know, up to $500 a day painting curves for 10 bucks a piece. So I saved my money and I knew Cameron had gone out there and I knew, you know, a lot of other uh, uh, American productions were going there, independent low-budget horror films were going there to get made. And so I I went there, and there's a group of Americans out there that were trying to work, and the, and the Italians, they were, and it was also very cheap to live there in the 80s, very, very inexpensive. So I got to work on movies, you know, with, with uh, Italian filmmakers. I got to watch Fellini, McGinger and Fred. Um, it was like heaven for me because I was, course like a lot of us huge fans of Fellini and you know the movies that he had done and and uh and so I went out there and a couple of my friends went out there with me um and we went out and we remember meeting this one producer and I was directing second unit out there I don't even remember what it was for for somebody out there and uh it was Edward Sarlui and he asked me he goes hey do you want to make uh do you want to uh make your own movie and I said, absolutely. He goes, well, do you have a script? And I had an idea. And uh, I go, well, I have a script. He goes, what's it called? I said, it's called The Falling. Eventually, it was called Alien Predators because they decided to, you know, it's a low budget, you know, the horror film thing. But I thought, I'm going to make my American Werewolf in London. You know, that's what I went out with an intention and uh, wrote this movie in three days, gave him the script. He goes, good, you can make this movie. You gotta shoot it in Spain. You gotta make it for, I mean, they, they advertised that the movie was made for, I don't even know what, but it was made for under $30,000. I basically got room and board and a little bit of money in my pocket. My girlfriend at the time was an actress who was sort of well-known, Lynn Holly Johnson, who had done Ice Castles and the James Bond movie. I got her to agreed to star in it, and I got Dennis Christopher to star in it, who was the star of Breaking Away at the time, and I got Martin Hewitt, who was a you know, star of Endless Love with Brooke Shields, and we went out to Spain 
and made this little movie and shot it. I don't even know how many days it was, but it wasn't very many. And we had a basically like a hundred thousand feet of film to shoot, which most people shoot in a day these days. And made this little movie, and I'm proud of it. I just did a voiceover for it um, for the director commentary, and I, I was proud of what turned out. Is it a great famous movie? No, but it's. I'm proud that it got done. And yeah, I, was I had gonna... a friend of mine that I was working with, Mike Serapis, who was working next to me too that never became a filmmaker after that but you know it was a huge help we made this little movie now you make it you make this little movie and now does do you feel like that's a calling card for you do you decide to come back to america because you have product now it's not like you're someone saying i'm a film student you have a movie that you wrote and directed does that make it easier for you to start getting more work it did, it did, because the movie did well. It actually got released in, you know, a handful of theaters. And uh, it wasn't like a big critical hit, but people liked it. And um, it had that sort of offbeat genre feel to it. It had comedy in it, and it was it was fun. And so then the same producer said, hey, do you want to do another one? And uh, do you have any other ideas? And I told him I did, and it was a post-apocalyptic story, kind of like Mad Max, but it was a dark offbeat comedy called Interzone and uh, at the time um, Bruce Abbott who was married to Linda Hamilton who also was she was a star of the movie that I did um, um, tagged the fascination game and they ended up getting married at the time before James Cameron married her and um, Linda Hamilton that is and uh, he agreed to star in it so we went and we shot that one all around and outside of Rome and it's a very spoofy, apocalyptic, my brother's in it, I'm in it. And uh, we made this, you know, listen, it, it, it's so offbeat and weird. It's good. It's a good little movie. And I've had people that have seen it. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, Quentin Tarantino sees everything. You know, he's a big fan of my father's. And, you know, he's, you know, I've heard through the grapevine that he's you know those type of movies are really inspired he'd like that sort of lower offbeat you gotta make it no matter what like you know Rodriguez did and does and, you know he likes that and uh, at the time we're thinking what are we doing but then looking back we're going I'm very very proud of those those early moments that led to another movie it led to an American movie and Greg Sam's a producer who was doing low-budget movies. He did uh, Horror High. He goes, hey, I have this little movie called To Die For. It's about, it's about, it's a love story about vampires. We're going to shoot it all in Los Angeles. And so it just kept, I can't pay you any money, but I can give enough money to stay alive, basically. So I made that movie, and it was released also in the theaters. and got a little bit of critical acclaim. And that led to Death Warrant with Jean-Claude Van Damme. And that was... Uh, about a million dollar budget. Now suddenly I'm getting paid. I'm getting, I got a director's guild scale. And uh, that opened in 800 theaters and did over $6 million opening weekend. And that led to Terminal Velocity with Charlie Sheen, which was like about a $55 million budget movie. Dunman, which is another couple of, under 2 million, I think. You know, they always in IMDb say they're higher, but they're right. not. Now, now, and, how, um, how is how is your directing style changing? Was it changing because you were going to a higher budget and you were getting more money 
for the production. How as a director do you, do you adapt to that, or do you just stay to yourself and just figure out, you know what, I just have a bigger thing to play with? I it stayed the same. It just it's it's interesting. Great question, Steve, because a lot of times you think, well, I only had you know thirty thousand dollars to make my first movie, and then when I hear I've got fifty five million. And I go, why is it, Why do I still feel like I don't have enough time to make this movie? And, and it, it's all, it's it's like a strange, and I've talked to other directors about that, and they all feel the same. And I got $55 million. I'm like, what am I going to do with all this extra time? But, you know, you work with the actors. I had James Gandolfini in that movie, Terminal Velocity. I had Nastasia Kinski, who... Uh, funny because Roman Polanski told me told me don't hide down you just want to be with her don't you I said well listen she's been my fantasy my whole childhood <laughs> you know and uh, and he goes you're making a huge mistake and and uh, I love this because she's, she's lovely but it was I was halfway through the movie I'm like going uh oh what have I got myself into and uh, here's somebody who detests movies like Tess and Catwoman and Cat People and, and uh, she uh, she really she ran me through it I'd like work with her on her scenes and she would like throw something at me and say you're not you're not you, you haven't been in this business long enough to, to be to act like this <laughs> you know, it's like that sort of thing and she was pretty she was pretty tough on me and but she did a really great job and, and so did Charlie I thought Charlie was I think it's like his whole character. His whole character in Three and a Half Men is a continuation of of, of his uh, his character in Terminal Velocity, the parachuting thing. And, uh, and uh, I loved working with Charlie, and I I feel bad all the stuff he's gone through. But you know, he's just what an amazing guy, generous human being, um, on all levels with his crew and all that. And just I, I feel bad for him what he went what he went through and then you have James Gandolfini who was a really great friend of mine after we did that movie and I actually saw him a week before he went to Italy and I know Marcy his wife in fact uh, I knew her before he knew her and uh, Deborah Lynn I knew her also before he knew her and I know his, his son Michael and he uh, he was just what a, you know a lot of people like be afraid to direct them. I talk to people that are directing them on Sopranos and uh, and um, and they were afraid of him. And I said, "Don't be afraid of him. He's the nicest, most generous actor on the planet. I mean, he's going to smell bullshit if you if you if you don't really get into the character and really if you're just shooting him just to shoot him to film him because he cares about his character and and uh, it all starts from writing character where you can." attempt to direct a frame of film and uh but we really had chris mcdonald was also in that movie and uh it was really a great experience and we shot for over three months and uh and uh got some really good reviews for that one now unfortunately the, the scandal with charlie and uh he was you know, transporting prostitutes across the border and that was a no-no, and we got in trouble for it. <laughs> On my movie, with Heidi Fleiss. <laughs> now, a question. Um, when you're directing, back then, because it's changed a lot, when you direct, when you get all this film, you know, 
how do you know what to keep? Because directing back then was you actually had to sit there and they had to nail the scene. Like here, what I've heard is nowadays it's, you know, because of digital or everything, it can be like eight different takes and you can splice it together. But as a director back then, like when you're working with Gandolfini and you say he gets so into character and he's just, you know, such a strong actor, how do you know when to stop him? How do you know when his scene is right? Is it just that you you feel it clicks, like you go, man, James nailed that? Or do you sit there and say, he can do better? Well, it's all about trust. And when I sat down with Jimmy, he wasn't famous then. He started to work, and uh, he was doing, uh, he was coming up quickly, coming up quickly. In fact, I had to talk to the studio and hiring him, um, because they weren't sure he could play the main bad guy. He wasn't chiseled guy that they were looking for and um and when i sat down with them we had we'd sit down at dinner and drinks and talk about the character because the one thing and one thing i hate is i hate i hate it when people say if the scene doesn't work can you do it louder and uh so i took that note so the first scene he was doing with me he looked over at me because we're all insecure as artists. This is the way it is. I'm sure even in your business, we, we, we just are. And, and I think that's a good thing. He looked over to me like, like, how am I doing? Right. And I said, can you do it louder? <laughs> and that's what I want him over. He thought, stopped for a second. He remembered what he had said to me. He just started laughing. He goes, all right, Darren, that's, and I, I don't want to say, you know, the expletives that he said, but you got me. I'm good. I got, we're good. And that was it. We're good. And I, sometimes it would be one take. It doesn't matter. And, you know, I, 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 Clint Eastwood, who I admire, you know, that's why he, he shoots. It's one take. If it works, it works. He moves on. And, uh, it's not always like that, obviously, but there could be like working with Hugh Laurie. You, you feel he got it. Move on in house. When he was, when I directed him in house. Now you that's do. That's how we, uh, no, I was going to say you're, you're doing these you're doing these movies, you know, Terminal Velocity. Now, I noticed then you start going to TV. How did that transition happen? That you ended up because you've had such a prolific TV career. I mean, you've directed so many shows. But when did you make that transition? And was it something that you wanted to do? Were you just tired of doing movies, or how did the transition happen? It, it wasn't, you know. Now it, it you know, looking back, hindsight it was a really brilliant move for me to get into television when no one else thought that was the cool place to go. But what happened basically, it was like sort of out of my control. And sometimes I feel like the business is you, you got to go with, you got to go with the flow of what's coming at you. And that doesn't mean take everything that's offered to you, but you got to go with the flow. And I was, I was developing a movie at Warner brothers. That was a go movie called flying tigers about Chanel to the flying tigers. And, uh, I was casting that, and I had done probably 3,000 storyboards. It was going to be like like Shelby Cobras in the Sky. It was going to be this really action-packed. I had planes built. I had sets built down in Mexico, and it was going to be even a bigger budget, probably upward of $80 million. And um, so I'm doing that at Warner Brothers, and I'm trying to get it together. And they're pushing actors on me, and I don't want to mention who they were, and they were sort of stars, they were stars at the time, but I felt they were on their way down. And then I really wanted Matthew McConaughey to play the lead. I wanted, and 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 they didn't want it, and I pushed and pushed, and I thought, you don't 
don't term not easy to me because it was a lot of hard work to get to where I was. But the one thing that I did have, and I learned it from my mom, who was a great person behind all of us, is you got to stick to your guns and people respect it down the road. And so I stuck to my guns and I said, if I can't make it with Matthew McConaughey, I'm not going to make the movie. They said, well, we're going to cancel the movie then. And they did. And they had a new, they had a new uh, president of the studio in there. And, uh, and it just, it, uh, they, they canceled the film. They paid me off. I was pay or play, paid me a million dollar salary. I got all the money. And then, you know what? I took two years off and I said, you know, I'm just going to take a break here because that really, really took the wind out of my sails. It also shook my confidence, I have to say. And, uh, and my agent goes, listen, there's, um, there's struggle Nash Bridges. That Carlton Cuse is producing. I, uh, who's that? I didn't know who he was. You know, eventually he was the you know him and Damon Lindelof ran Lost, um, who's now a very dear friend of mine, uh, Carlton. And he he sat down with me and he said, "Listen, I really want you to do this." Don Johnson really really liked your movie. I know you've never done an episode of TV. And I said, "Okay." And I, and I I thought, "Okay, I'll just do this and I'll I'll go back to features." Well, the future is that's a big, that's a train. And when that train is moving, you jump off that train. It's like running and chasing after a train that's going 45 miles an hour and you can't get to it. And that train kind of spun, spun away from me. I had some offers, some, some, some movies that I didn't like. I was being very, very picky. Movies like uh, Face Off, it was at Paramount, and, uh, and some other, some other uh, Men in Black was, was sent to me to consider. And <clears throat> I wasn't sure about it. I was getting offered everything. I was like the player of the, of the month at the time. And so I, I um, got offered. I, I, first of all, I, I got the script. They said, you're going to have to direct eight pages a day. I'm like, what? <laughs> this is what I did when I was doing Alien Predators or, you know, the other the main title. That's how I got that done. There's no way I could shoot that many pages a day. This is impossible. And Carlton said, it's Darren, you can do it. I know you came out of low budget, but you can do this. And I was almost, I was considering walking off and saying, I can't do it. I, there's no way. But I did do it, and I got a shot on time and on budget, and turned out fantastic. A great emotional through line. Don Johnson, who is not, has a reputation of not being the easiest guy to work with, who, uh, who um, was very tough on me, super tough on me. Uh, when I was directing, because he thought I was some young hotshot who thought I knew it all. He's probably right. <laughs> um, and uh, he got in my face a few times. I mean, literally in my face. I mean, he'd be yelling at me, and pieces of cod for breakfast would be coming out of his mouth and hitting me in the eye. I'm like, <laughs> I'm thinking, my brother's looking at me going, what are you going to do? You don't take this. You're going to do that. I sat there, and I looked up in the sky, and I took a deep breath, and I go, I'm going to take it because I have a feeling this is important. And it was. They ended up offering me more episodes, established my relationship with uh, two people. One, John Worth, who I did Hell on Wheels with down the road. He wrote the script. And Carl DeCuse, who hires me on everything he does, pretty much. Not everything, but most things he does. And uh, he, uh, he actually hired me not too long ago to do Lock and Key when he was doing that as a, you know, one of the executive producers on it. And it unfortunately fell apart on 
Um, it would have been great doing that. I've worked on the strain with them, you name it. So just you can go down his list. I've done that. So I stuck in there, I hung in there, and um, and then John Worth, who wrote the script, I've been working with him. I was on the phone with him today, actually, about a project we're thinking of doing, a movie about Teddy Roosevelt's early years. So um, we, uh, you know, all this, this is all the the things, uh, these are all the, the ups and downs and that drove me into what I've been doing, and uh, I've I've done well with it. I've, I I don't feel like it's funny because I still feel like I'm young at heart, uh, and uh, my best work has not come yet. And but it's all these are all foundation. These are all part of the foundation for for the best work to come. Now, when you made the transition from TV to movie, I mean movie to TV. How did you have to make the transition as a director? I mean, how did you have to change your style? Because, as you say, you had to shoot more pages. It was like back when you started out. How I did you learned, start in those I early days? I learned how important prep is. Um, there, there were certain terminology, filmmaking terminology, that I just didn't even know what it was. I didn't actually even know the difference between the studio and the network. I thought it was the same thing. So I had to really educate myself quickly. To, to understand the studio makes it. Warner Brothers can be the studio, uh, uh, for instance, and then the network could be CBS, and that was CSI. When I got in, and my friend Danny Cannon uh, hired me to do CSI Miami, and that went really, I knew that was a huge turning point in my career when I got CSI Miami in the beginning, the first season. And it went really, really well. And I had... Um, um, uh, a lot of attention from my episodes, which turned into CSI New York, and well, CSI, and then CSI New York, and I ended up doing the first episode, which I shot, if you look at that first episode, um, with Gary Sinise, um, it, it it looks more like a Serpico than it does a CSI. Eventually, I got fired that first season because they said, we want it to look like CSI Miami. You did it on CSI Miami. And I go, no, if you look at my episodes... I didn't like the backlit stuff. I didn't like all the, the gloss. I, I turned away from all that. I shot on 16 millimeters sometimes when I could. I wanted it to be gritty and have a more organic vibe to it. Like in CSI Miami, if you look at the episode Freaks and Geeks, um, you'll see it. It doesn't. It looks like an independent movie. And then when I went to do CSI New York, uh, um, I, I did the first episode. We have a huge premiere in New York, and Les Moonves comes up to me. He goes, "I want it with the gloss and this." and all the look that CSI Miami had. I said, well, Les, I didn't do that on CSI Miami or my CSIs. I kind of turned away from turned away from that look and, and did it more organic, like more like available light instead of every available light, available light. And, and, and I got that look, and I went faster because of that. And those are things I learned when my father worked with, uh, you know, did, did a vanishing point. And he didn't have a lot of light on that. He made it look organic and gritty, and and, uh, and that's kind of, again, the influence of my, my father. I really, really, it really it hung in there with me. And the films that I loved growing up, other films, Outlaw Jersey Wales, Clint Eastwood movies, and that sort of thing, they, he didn't go for, they didn't go for um, 
all the lights and the glitz and the camera and say, you know, so you want to keep the camera away from the actors. So you get back further, there's longer lenses, so the cameras aren't in the way, so they can perform and they can get into character without feeling that they've got these giant beasts. All the cameras are smaller today. Um, stick all around them because it takes away. They feel it and they, they'll, they'll turn towards it. It's like a moth going to a light. They'll turn towards that camera. You don't want that. So that's how I directed. That's how I did uh, my my CSI. CSI. I remember, I remember one time uh, my, one of my CSI Miamis. Um, I got a note from the studio. We want to see two eyes always when people are talking. Two eyes. And I was shooting like a feature. I was shooting back, and I didn't want to see two eyes. Sometimes I wanted to see people, and I wanted to see both characters together. I want to see them talking to each other, moving around each other. And I always let actors do their thing and then I find I'll stand where I think my, my master's going to be and then the actors will gravitate to you they'll, they'll, they'll find a way they'll turn in t- towards you because they're performing for you when they're rehearsing rehearsal is everything in these things and again I learned how to rehearse because I only had so much film to work with in my early days so you rehearse, you rehearse, you rehearse before you sh- that precious film it was like gold you don't want to run that camera till you know you're ready and uh, by that time, damn, you get that one, two, three takes, and you're done for that angle. And um, it, it, they do, they're very similar now also. If you look at television today, you look at the, you know, I was watching uh, uh, Black Mirror when I was traveling from Wilmington uh, um, to L.A. last night. I was watching some Black Mirrors. Very shot, very film line. Really, it's an excellent series, TV series, excellent writing, and I and I see that a lot of television is changing to that style because of the size of the television sets. You don't have to jump in for those close-ups all the time, which makes the show look small. But when you're back and wide, a long lens, they look they look like features, and that's. That's why it's so great these days. Cable television is doing so well and exploding. You know, it's, there's no limit to Netflix and what they what they want they can do these days and the Amazons. Now, you know, you mentioned earlier about House. How did you end up beginning getting on House? And you, you know, you ended up directing 22 episodes. As a director, you know, I, I talk to a lot of actors who are guest stars, and they do one one episode, then they keep getting called back. How did you, how did it become that you ended up getting called back to do so many episodes of House? I I brought my own sensibility to House. House had a style. House was a very serious show when when I got on board, and and David Shore, the writer, has a great sense of humor, and then you've got Hugh Laurie, who's a genius, and. Uh, and when I sat down with you know with with Hugh and, and I said you know the stuff that really works for me looking at the episodes because they're you know that was the first season you know and I go it's it works when it's when it's got that dark sense of humor to it it's not comedy it's walking that fine line of, of reality humor that we all we all make each other laugh all day long we don't know it but we do we have a sense of humor to take the edge off and Hugh Laurie has this brilliant sense of humor coming off of Black Adder and, and the different shows that he had done in England. And I go, you're taken away. And then David Shore says, I know, I know, that's what I want. It's how I write. And, and I go, well, why aren't you embracing that rather than, than doing it differently? He goes, because the studio 
doesn't like the humor. And then they found out little by little and that the humor did work. It was dark. And you could have drama. You could have very, very emotional sequences. But you can also have a sense of humor. And Because we have that sense of humor. We just do. It's, an, it's innate in all of us. And people, people identify with it. And I would go to dinner with you, Lori, after, uh, after work, and we would talk about it. And, uh, and I have to, I really, David Shore, you know, he's doing great with his, his show now. And he's uh, um, a good doctor, and you can see that he's embraced that, and he embraced his talent of writing that sort of dark, edgy sense of humor. It works, and it did work. And I watched that show. I watched the needle go up on that show, and then Hugh Laurie goes, I want you to stick around. And then episodes that I was working on and directed uh, were winning awards, and, and the show was suddenly the, you know, uh, a hit, eventually the number one show on television. And and uh, so the studio no longer had the power anymore to say, this is what we want. They're saying, just keep doing what you're doing. And it gave it gave it gave David Shore and Larry Capello, another writer that I worked with a lot on that show, the ability to to freestyle and be more trust instinct rather than go by the color by numbers uh, palette that we had to deal with. We we didn't do that anymore. We were free, and it was one of the greatest watching all that and suddenly getting the accolades and all that. And the one thing that we did, though, and I know that we tried not to, and Katie Jacobs was another big part of it, her husband, Paul Atanasio, who wasn't really around, Katie was sort of, that came in as a non-writing, non-direct, eventually direct, embraced that as well, and inspired. She's the one who hired me to be a, become a, one of the executive producers on it, co-executive producer. Uh, and uh, eventually, I had done what, 20, what did it say, 22, 23 episodes yeah. of the first 100 episodes. So I had a big part of that. And uh, we, had a, we had a great time. We really did. We just, now, we, 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 I brought Olivia Wilde onto the show. I was working with her on a TV series, and we were looking for new characters. And I was working with her on the Black Donnellys, and I brought her on board. She's... Uh, she flourished in that environment. Boy, did she flourish. And did she, it really, I think, catapulted her career. Into, now she's a director. She's brilliant. Now, as a director, what is it like, you know, when you said, you know, Hugh, Hugh Laurie is, this, this, is so brilliant. What is it, how, is it easier for you when you start directing him a bunch of times do you guys get to know each other like sort of like a baseball pitcher and a catcher i mean how does the relationship grow and then is it a point where the trust must be so strong and you're working with such great talent it just much much might make your job easier it does make your job easier uh but you're as good as your last episode like they say you know and it does make it easier, but also puts it does put a certain amount of pressure on because they say that really worked. We want you to do that again, and uh, and so it it it, it does. Hugh Hugh became a very good friend of mine during that, and and then I became a producer where I'm hiring the directors and I'm working with the if the other directors aren't doing well, I get the call. Hey, come on up, you got to come down the set. This is uh, Hugh's not getting along with the director 
not, he's just not getting along. And I'd have to go in there and, you know, try to be the, that was the hardest part, is when I'm not directing, working with directors and trying to get them to shoot their show. At the same time, there are certain ways that he likes to work, especially when you've done it for as many hours as he's done it at this point, you know, when you're in season five, four, you know, he's got a system down. Not that everybody that he wants a system, but he does have a com- comfort level that you have to that you have to cater to in order to him open up. And uh, that was the hardest part because to find that formula and try to help both the director and I'm a big advocate of directors that directors need to need to uh, express themselves because that's why we're hiring them. Or we just have the camera cameraman and camera operator shoot the shows. The director's got to bring the sensibility. And his sensibility and his what what makes it makes a difference. It makes a huge difference if a director is bringing himself to the show. Because you don't want them all to be kind of carbon copies of each other, or they'd be boring. The show will be boring. Now you've you transitioned to executive producer in a lot of shows now. Explain that to me a little bit, because I know when writers, I know a lot of comedy writers who write on sitcoms, and they're basically, they're writers, and they're just getting a title. Now, I know you said you have to call the directors in and stuff like that and get on set, but what is the difference between a writer being an executive producer and someone who was a director being an executive producer? Well, it depends. I mean, credits are handed out. You notice, you, we've all noticed, there's like a zillion producers. Like, I'll tell my friends or my family back in Kansas, hey, i got a show on, and and they said, look, you've got, you've got, I counted like 11 executive producer or co-executives or, you know, creative producers. It just goes on forever. And what happens is, is writers, writers are given, if they've been there for a while, they're given a credit and they get paid for that credit. They get paid extra for that credit. It gives an excuse for the studio to pay them more because they have that credit. They get paid as an executive producer because the writing credits, they want to keep it at a certain price, you know, that is that they have to pay. And so that credit, um, and usually when you look at, you look at these shows, usually the last credits are the most important uh, executives on the show. They're the ones that really are contributing the most. They could be a writer. It could be uh, uh, like myself, a producing director. And, uh, and then it gets, then you come to the, you come to the end, which is written by, uh, or produced, or executive produced, or written by and directed by, and that's those are the and the last credit is directed by, which is still standard even to this day um, as the last as the last credit. Now, writers of television, they're the ones that develop the show with with someone at the studio. They get to know them really, really well, so they've got a lot of they get a lot of power because of the relationship they have with the studio, developing, developing, going through all the steps, and suddenly they got a pilot after developing. The pilot gets made, and out of 30 pilots, it gets picked. So now there's a real strong bond between the studio writer, and the, and so the director's brought in. Now, like I've done pilots. I did a pilot, Tayville, another one called Past Life. They both got picked up. But the writer has developed this. Now they've used it picked to be a... Uh, pilot director so you're coming in after all that hard work and you're going to take their baby and you're going to nurse this baby and it's it's a, it's a very precarious uh line to walk because you want to bring your sensibility to this work the writers put so much work in the studios so, so you've got to 
really, they say be political, you've got to be political. But you've got to get your story shot, your story shot as well. So it's a way you've got to be able to, and the people that are really successful, unfortunately, are the very, you know, and if I said I wasn't political, I'd be lying to you. You've got to have that sensibility. I'm much more now, when you were talking earlier, what's different now between when you're doing movies and, uh, and television. Back when I was doing films, I was not political. I mean, I would hang up on studio execs. I didn't care. I would grab a script out of a writer's hand and say, we got to rewrite this. And uh, I would do it. I didn't care because I knew I'd get the next movie and it wouldn't be the same people. So, um, as I, and I didn't know that when I first got involved with like the first episode I directed, I was up there rewriting Nash Bridges and Carlton Hughes heard about it and he got, came up there and he's, he's not, he's the kindest guy that there and this is not, let me explain to you how television works. And, uh, and I heard him, I listened to him, I go, oh, okay, well, all right, well, I won't do that then. Even now, if you change or put a comma sometimes somewhere, the writers will get upset. You change something. And then the, the other difficult thing, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, the other difficult thing is you'll get a writer or a writer that's been sent up now to sit in the village with you, and then you'll direct the scene. He goes, could you like have him say it louder? He said, I'm not going to go up to the actor and tell him to say it louder. So you sometimes you get that, and you'll get somebody that overcompensates with that. And every single move you make, I don't like that. Can you get it from, you didn't get a close up here. And I said, well, listen, I haven't turned the camera around yet. <laughs> so now that's what the directors are, that's what we're dealing with now. We're dealing with, an, and somebody will be empowered that maybe is not even, maybe he's written his fifth script as a new writer and he's been set up. And I'm not going to point fingers at what productions those were. But then it's like, and I'll, I'll be like an executive and I'll have to go up to the writer and say, listen, you got to get this guy some room. You can't tell him every single shot. You just can't do it. And I've, been, I've gotten tougher now in my in my latter years of directing, trying to be say, you can't do that. And they call the executive who's writing, working in the writer's room, the main writer down there, and then it causes a problem. So it's it's a, it's a universal problem. And right now, if any other directors are listening to me that direct television, they're right now standing on their feet applauding this, because that's what we deal with now. Very, very, very tough. Now, now when you, I'm directing now, I don't even sit. I don't even sit in the village looking at the monitor. I'm sitting on the bottom of the camera, looking at a handheld monitor in my hand. So I be close. As, I can be as close to the actress as I can, so I don't have to listen to people whispering behind my back. The 15 people that are sitting in Video Village having a having a comment. Now you you you're a director and you're also a producer. Like on shows like Dominion and Rosewood, you did both. Do you choose what episode you want to direct, or how does that work? Because you've directed episodes for both, but you can't direct all of them. How do you do? You pick it because you have the clout and say, "Hey, I, I like this script. I'm going to do this." Or do they say, "Hey, do you want to direct this one?" Um, they say, "Hey, you're going to direct this one." It depends. Mostly, when I was doing House, I directed 11, 11 episodes one year in one year, so one season. So we were doing twenty four. So. I was able to, they said, direct as many as you need. Well, those days are over. Now we're dealing with, we have, um, <clears throat> we have diversity that we deal with. They got to fill a quota. We have to fill a quota, which I'm all for. I feel that we do need diversity. And, um, you know, I, I, when, even when it wasn't required, I was hiring, uh, my, you know, say diversity. I don't like to say minorities, but, um, um, and, and women, women as well. Like I hired Leslie Lisa Gladder. I had to get her 
I had to, I had to fight for her. And, uh, and, and she now is one of the star female directors in our business. She's won Directors Guild Awards, many, many nominations, but super, super talent. Well, now we deal with that. We have to fill 50% quota, usually, especially network, women in diversity, and uh, which, which I think is great. I know a lot of my, my white contemporary directors, you know, would say it's different because it's tough because, you know, you look at a Directors Guild and it's, what, 20% uh, diverse if you count women in there. And the rest, so all the other directors are having difficulty getting jobs. I have friends of mine that have lost houses, and you know it's tough. And then they come to you. I really need a job. I got to have a job. And they're good directors. You go to the studio, and they go, "No, we have to fill this quota." And uh, it's 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 there. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. It's like one 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 side it's great, and then you see people losing their houses, and it's it's it's, it's tough. And they are fully capable of directing, but there is a quota. And the studios are adhering to it, and it's—I it's, uh, mean, even now with Golden Globes, uh, there was a big, there's a big controversy that fe- there's no female nomination. And uh, in fact, there were Olivia Wilde was up there on the list of somebody who should have been nominated. And uh, so that's a, that's a big thing in Hollywood right now. That's going to get a lot of con- even more controversy. Um, somebody's going to somebody's going to be upset and sue or do something you know i'm very very fortunate i guess, I guess and, and that i have a track record behind me and i do get hired um because I, i'm a senior senior director now which i, I call i like i go really i'm a senior director wow. <laughs> how that happened um but uh it's uh and so that's now these guys i said listen then write an independent movie and go direct your own movie that's the that's the you know, I need to do that now. I'm looking. I'm I'm writing two scripts right now that uh, I'm going to go make. Now, is that because is that because you you get a little tired of TV and you want to go back to your roots, or what would make you? Because you're making a great living. You're directing TV. You work a lot. Is it just something that you want to get back to your roots and have that, let's say, that freedom of you can take as long as you want to shoot, or why are you deciding to write movies now? And is that what you want to parlay into eventually? Because I, I have something to say, and uh, I want, I'm an auteur as well, and I, and I don't want to get, and I, I brought my, that sort of sensibilities of my directing and to my projects, uh, um, and even Swamp Thing, which sounds like it's, you know, it's a DC Universe thing, I brought in everybody on that show, I brought in a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, creatives, I brought in our line producer, and, you know, and, and, uh, and uh, production designer, and, uh, and assistant directors and camera people that I worked with in Atlanta, I put together and I was able to really craft what I felt like, even though, you know, we had, uh, you know, Atomic Monster and production company, and there was a lot of people, voices in there, but I got in there early. And I really, if you know, the, the reviews on that are, I mean, why we didn't get a second season, I have no idea. I've never seen reviews like that. I mean, 94% Rotten Tomatoes positive, like talking about it like it's next, next great thing. Problem is where would you go with it? That was the big problem with it. And uh, yeah, Mark Verheiden was who brought me in. So really, Mark Verheiden, the, the, the main writer on that, who I worked with on Hemlock Grove, or one of the early Netflix shows, I guess the second one they ever did, uh, television series, uh, brought me in and, uh, and said, bring in everybody. And some of the people he'd worked with before too. And so we together put together this really great team. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, though. 
question you asked me. Well, no, I just wanted to know why, you know, you said because you're in a tour, why is it something that you want to really concentrate on doing movies now? Because you've, yeah. you've done so much in TV. You've, I mean, your credits, you have so many damn credits. It must be after a while you got to say, like anything, if a guy's an accountant for 25 years, he wants to change what he wants to do accounting in. Is it something that you want to go back to now and you want to really concentrate on doing a feature? I do, I do, and I've been inspired. I went to the screening of uh, of The Irishman where Scorsese talked on stage at the Directors Guild and listened to him talk, and it just kind of it really lit a fire under me listening to him, and I'm such a fan of his, and among some other artists that I've worked with, and uh, Roman Polanski as well, like, you know, Darren, why aren't you doing a movie? When I get back in the USSR in Russia with him, um, you know, he was whoa, what a mentor that guy was. I mean, I know he's gone through his troubles with, with uh, you know, what, what happened to him in the United States, but he was, uh, I'll never forget, he gave me, he actually gave, gave me the best advice in the business, which which I'll never forget. I I was filming a scene in communist Russia, by the way. I was shooting in communist Russia with him. And uh, he had asked me, um, he was there and you look upset, you look like you're not... I do, by the way, the same accent for everybody. <laughs> uh, Darren, I, even Hugh Laurie, I talked to him, how he talks. Um, and he goes, what's wrong? I said, I just don't know. I'm trying to figure out the right way to do this. And he said, there's a thousand ways to do it right, and there's a thousand ways to do it wrong. Just pick one. And so then I went on. It was the scene where Frank Whaley gets his palm read by a guy with a gun, and the guy at the end of it shoots a hole through his hand. This mafia guy. And it was Frank, actually it was the Roman Polanski shooting the gun. And so I figured out how to do it. And uh, I had another idea in my head, but it wasn't working. And so I figured out how to do it, and I went up to Polanski, had tears in my eyes. And I said, thank you. You, you freed me as a, as a, as a director. You, you, you set me free. I, 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 I I'll never forget this. And he goes, that's nice, son, but you picked the wrong one. <laughs> so, but the but the but the advice from that I use, and I tell it to all the young filmmakers that I work with and I hire, and if they get stuck, and it, and it really lends itself to independent filmmaking, and that's one of the reasons. Getting back to your question, yes, I'm going to make an independent film. I wrote a film, a very very dark, interesting uh, uh, piece that that I want to shoot. Is um, to explain to New York City. And I want to shoot this movie, and and I tell my agents every day, I got some time. I want to make this movie, <clears throat> so we're putting that together, which is a script that I wrote, all mine, and then I'm developing a couple of the things, the the uh, the young Teddy Roosevelt story about the Rough Riders in the early days, and a horror film that I'm working on as well. <clears throat> that that uh, I want to make a contained horror film that I want to shoot, and uh, so. I feel like it's now time, like my father did at my age uh, in his career, he got into acting again. Well, I want to get into features again. I don't want to give up television because I love directing television. I do love it. And uh, I found a real great home there. And um, and I've had opportunities to do little independent movies here and there. I never did them because I thought, you know, I'm on this, I'm on this new train, television train. I want to stay on it. But now with the... Uh, the advancement of television, you can make an independent film. You can put it on Netflix. This, the, the, the arena to, to perform, to perform or be a gladiator is so much bigger now. It's fast and exciting. 
Well, that's awesome, man. You know, I, I want to thank you for taking time to talk to me. You've had such a great career. People, go to go to look at his work. And I'm going to spell the name for you because a lot of people can never figure out names. It's D-E-R-A-N-S-A-R-A-F-I-A-N. Go to IMDb. Find his work. Go check it out. You know, because you'll sit there and, you know, you'll just be amazed at his resume. And you can see this stuff and you go, holy crap, he was talking about that. So check Darren out. Uh, check my website out, people, coopertalk.net. You can find over 765 episodes up there. Email me, cooper, coopertalk.net. Tell me who you want to hear, what you want to talk about. And also follow me on Twitter, at coopertalk. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water. Eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.